How's that for a slice of fried gold? Oh, you think this is a fucking costume? This is a way of life. I'll be back. Just a flesh wound. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Take your sticking paws off me, you damn dirty ape. I'm sorry, Ben. I can't see that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! I guess everyone's a title one. Good scare. Gary, you need to pump up the energy. Remember when pump you were? It up! Remember when you were like you're listening to a lot of like last podcasts on the left, and you're like, I'm gonna match that energy. Well, hello, everybody. Whoa. Welcome to the Cinema Shock Podcast. Wow. So happy to be alive and so happy to be here with you on this brand new year. Yeah. yeah happy yeah. new year. Happy, happy new, new year, year fellas. Oh, well, it's better than the last one. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. if you're hearing this as we're recording it, we've found out that the vaccine doesn't work and we're in <laughs> the apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, the podcast servers are still up. (laughs) Now we're broadcasting to you with some weird DJ named The Dog, and he's on uh, some kind of, it's like the Fallout game. And so he's just like, (laughs) well, hope all of you people out in the wasteland are doing okay. Here's another episode of the Cinema Shock Podcast. I like to think it's recordings. (laughs) I like to think it's that guy at the beginning of that audio slave music video. Question is not when they're gonna stop talking about movies, but who is gonna leave it stop to Todd it. to do a fucking audio slave reference. <laughs> <laughs> what's wrong with audio slave? I love audio. What's wrong with audio slave? They took they took oh god, here we go. The best here bands go. of the 90s. Buckle up, fans. It's the I hate audio slave. You podcast. had two of the best bands of the 90s. You had Rage Against the Machine, you had Soundgarden. You take elements from both of those, mash them together, it should be magic. And instead, it's some radio friendly pop bullshit rock. And I hate it. I think it's terrible. It's fine, Sorry, Todd. I'm actually, I'm going to say, <laughs> I, I hate doing this, but I'm just going to fall in the middle on that because, like, I don't love them. They don't have like any full album that I listen to, but they do have songs that I really like. The anyway. original fire is dying. Okay. Don't think too much of that. We'll, we'll get flagged okay. on YouTube. <laughs> Uh, but anyway so they got they got some stuff i dig yeah okay whatever i mean i love rage against the machine and i love chris cornell so in theory i should love audio slave but i think they suck you sound like a guy who's not cool with scott stapp being cast as jesus no what (laughs) What? wait this happen just so you know we are sinatra i thought that sounded crazy when i was gonna say it just now and i just looked it up and it is he's playing frank sinatra oh yeah oh my god it's in a it's in a ronald (laughs) reagan biopic that's coming out yeah Um, fans don't worry we are gonna get to death rides a horse we're just oh my god it's we're just (laughs) it's been a long week we're just reacquainting ourselves with each other scott stapp sounds like (laughs) Frank's and <laughs> yeah yeah if ever i if ever i've listened to a, a vocalist and said that's who should play frank sinatra it's the guy from creed, guy from creed. Uh, anyway well thanks uh, for being here with us rice. it's a new year but the podcast is still the same we're going to talk about movies yeah. and uh tell you all the deep diving stories you want to hear about them that we can some of them are harder than others it's easy to find stuff about batman movies harder to find stuff from italy in 1967 
but we still got it. We still got some stuff. We have done our best. That's what we have done. So it is. It is a new year. And I'm yes. Gary Horde, by the way. I don't think. Oh, I said yeah, that. that's uh, that's your co-host, Gary Horn. I'm your co-host, Justin Bishop. Joining us today is writer, comedian. I don't. That's all I got. Writer, comedian. Oh, oh. Todd. Come on, Justin, hit Just, me with it. I didn't have anything to. You already stepped on my audio slave. Come on. Yeah. Okay. Writer, <laughs> comedian, and audio slave fan. I mean, there's there's an insult for you. I'd like to Mr. think that Todd, Todd A. Davis. I think I'd like to think that audio slave is just the alternate nickname for his penis. <laughs> <laughs> and you just stepped on his penis. We'll we'll have to get Cat to chime in on that. <laughs> oh, no, anyway, it's a new year, so and we are starting a new series here on the podcast. You want to put a little we- audio slave in your ear tonight? Oh my God. We anyway, love to the podcast. <laughs> so this is a series we've been wanting to do for a long time called the six degrees of kill bill. I guess we should give a little background kill bill for anyone who might have lived under a rock for the last 15 years. Doesn't know kill bill is a, a two part film by Quentin Tarantino. And like many Quentin Tarantino movies, it references a lot of other movies. I mean, if you know anything about Quentin Tarantino, if you've ever heard in any interview with him, then you know that the guy, he likes movies. He likes to talk about movies. Uh, he likes to talk in general, but he especially yeah. likes to talk about movies, especially those like exploitation and genre movies of the 70s. Stuff that I reject cool. your thesis. <laughs> if, you're, and if you are a fan of his stuff, then you know that his films often contain references to a lot of those movies that he loves. Every one of his movies contains a... a more references than we could possibly talk about here on the yeah. show. Yeah. Quick side note: Does anybody else think Miles sounds like Quentin Tarantino a lot when he gets Miles excited? Griffin? Yeah, Miles, our special guest, Miles. I hear you know. it, so I almost yeah, feel like if we're going to have bit. quotes from Tarantino, bit. we get Miles to record those. <laughs> well, I don't agree with that, but if Miles wants to do that, oh, I no, to. I'm or we get DJ to record it, and if nobody's ever heard Quentin Tarantino talk before and they think he sounds like DJ with like his, uh, yeah, we'll uh. <laughs> they're going to be real freaking shocked <laughs> like when they see T- Tarantino finally talk. But here, here's the thing. It has, it has to be like an accurate translation with all the ums and the ahs and the yas. And, and the, the uh, all right. All right. All right. <laughs> I was oh, watching God, interviews. Yes, so I, 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 every time I look up Tarantino, I get sucked into one of the interviews where like the, he gets interviewed by the uh, the one dude. I can't think of his name, but just <laughs> that just pisses him off. And he's just like, this, this is a commercial for my movie don't get the wrong idea and the guy's like well you you blow my body he's like i reject your thesis i reject your thesis and we're moving on <laughs> i can end this at any time it's great it's great interview. i love oh, that hey awesome. you know he's right <laughs> anyway so i he references his, uh, these movies that he loves a lot but i think out of all the movies he's made which he's up to nine of them now with once upon a time in hollywood mm. i don't think he wears his influences on his sleeve more blatantly i think than he does in his two-part revenge epic, Kill Bill, came out in mm-hmm. 2004. So for the next few weeks, we are going to attempt to cover some of the films that are most clearly referenced in Kill Bill with this new series. We're calling it The Six Degrees of Kill Bill. It's going to be six movies that we think are major influences on Kill Bill. We obviously can't touch on every movie that inspired it, or we'd be, or we would spend the entirety of 2021 talking about Kill Bill. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but We'll try to touch on six movies that I think are some of the biggest touchstones. So we're going to start things off. We're kind of going in these in just chronological order based on the time that the movie was released. So we're going back to 1967 for the first one. We're starting off with a spaghetti Western genre with Giulio Petroni's Death Rides a Horse. Death 
rides a horse. When you've waited 15 years to find a man, it's a shame you can only kill him once. The bandits who killed five defenseless people made one big mistake. They should have killed six. Ever since he was a little boy, there was one thing he always wanted to do. Find four men and kill them. Gotta get away, get the soundtrack in this. Man, I'll tell you what, my wife, she's only mildly excited about this series, to be honest, but like she was (laughs) on the couch while I was watching this movie the first time, which I have watched it twice now in one week. Spoiler alert, I fucking love this movie. Anyway, (laughs) she kept dozing off or something, but when she woke up, she was like, That movie, it has some amazing music. She's like, That's all I know is I kept waking up and thinking, This music is so cool for this old Western movie. Yeah. Yeah. It's a Neo Morricone. It is who is arguably, we'll get into it, but arguably (laughs) one of like top five composers of all time. Right. Uh, And that music is so good that, yes, it is used in Kill Bill. I mean, we, because when we talk about Kill Bill's references, if you, even if you wanted to pick a spaghetti Western, because it's like, oh yeah, of course a spaghetti Western is a major influence. You could talk about any number of spaghetti Westerns, but this is one, Death Rides a Horse is one that Tarantino very specifically references in Kill Bill, going so far as to borrow that Neo Morricone score for his film. And uh, we just listened, we just played the trailer for you guys. And in the trailer, there's even a, I don't think it's even in the movie, but in the trailer, the, the, guy, the announcer guy the the trailer voice guy says something along the lines of the bandits killed five defenseless people that night but made one big mistake they should have killed six that line is almost (laughs) almost taken directly line for line in kill bill when they talk about lucy lou's uh oren ishii's origin story and actually a lot of uh what's what's his name bill character's backstory in this parallels over in Ishii's backstory. Yeah, and, they thought yeah, they killed it, 10 people that day, but they made a mistake. They only killed nine. Yeah, so that that's just the first of quite a few major influences in this film, like that are not, not just influence, but that Tarantino is directly taking from this movie that he loves. Maybe this, maybe Death Rides a Horse is not as well known as some of the films by, you know, someone like Sergio Leone, who is arguably like the king of the spaghetti Western. But I think it deserves to be discussed in the same conversation as, as Leone's dollars trilogy, which is I'm sure a series that we'll discuss one day on this podcast, because it's a, it's a touchstone for these type of movies. I think like, if you look back, I mean, everything I was able to dig up, it almost, I mean, I swear everything you find somehow references Tarantino almost. It's almost like this movie was going to like, just go into obscurity. If not for him, it really did it up. This movie is a cult film today because Quentin Tarantino has talked about it so much and referenced it so much. Otherwise it was, yes, very much in danger of being forgotten. I think having some of the same uh, creatives working on it that worked on Leone's films probably would have helped it from going like fading completely into obscurity, but it definitely has the cult following it does now because of Quentin Tarantino and because of Kill Bill. Because yeah. and, and it does, it has some major connections to Leone's films. I don't and, want, I don't want to crap on, by the way, just to, throw this in there real quick. I, I wasn't crapping on its legacy just uh, as a move. Like, you know, it, it probably oh, would have been around in its, you know, sure. some people would know it, but, it, but not as many people. 
Right, exactly. Probably not as many people. And they timed it really well, too, because, you know, I know you're about to go into some of the connections, but, like, during this time, I was looking at it, and, like, in 67, Leone had finished the Dollars films. Uh, he was getting stuff together from Once Upon a Time in the West. He was pretty darn prolific in the 60s. If you think about how many gentleman callers Justin's mom has in a night, you'll get an idea of, like, what Leone was doing in the 60s uh, wow. with films. I'm just kidding. Happy I'm just New kidding. Year. Happy New Year, everybody. Bring it back to your mama thing, apparently. Uh, but I'm just kidding. She it's it's not as many as her. Uh, but starting in 64 and for the next couple of years, I mean, he had a fistful of dollars, a few dollars more, the good, the bad, the ugly. And then I imagine like people just started Those expecting all things that happened to her in the night, like <laughs> end up with a fistful oh of dollars, asking for a few dollars more. Wow. She usually spent the good, the bad, and the ugly. Justin's already, he's going to start off pissed off at us. Uh, <laughs> but no, I imagine everybody just started expecting like Sergio Leone spaghetti Western movies. But when he was getting ready for Once Upon a Time, which was, it comes out in 68, he took 67 completely off, which led to this film almost like having perfect timing. Because like, Well, it, yeah, because it, it shares quite a few of the same Cast members, honestly, a lot of the bad guys in this are part of like Leone's Dollars Trilogy rogue gallery. Uh, plus, of course, you've got Ennio Morricone working on the score. You've got Lee Van Cleef as your star, who was in the la- the the two the second the the second and third of the Dollars Trilogy, and most importantly, probably is screenwriter Luciano Vincenzoni. So Vincenzoni was a well-respected script doctor in Italy. Uh, he was a very well-established screenwriter through his entire career. I mean, the guy's career is pretty wild, honestly. He he went on to do, even after this, he went on to do like Red Dawn with Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> later in his career. Stuff wow. I was looking up, like they, it felt like they, not just a script doctor, like he was known as the script doctor. Right. <laughs> and he had a storied career before and after this. He worked with Billy Wilder, you know, like he, uh, again, later on, he worked on stuff like Red Dawn and Molina, I think was his last name, which is kind of a, an Italian, I'd say art house film from the early 2000s. I think that was actually probably his last film. But his collaborations with Sergio Leone marked his most mainstream works, his most well-known internationally at the time. And that was something that he was actually kind of resentful for later in life because he he kind of saw those as being beneath him a little bit, like they were just kind of jobs that he was doing. He later said in an interview, I have written movies that won the prizes at Cannes and Venice. These were screenplays for which we suffered on paper for months. Do you know how long it took me to write for a few dollars more? Nine days. Wow. Yeah, he was pretty particular. And, and I read some stuff with Petroni and, you know, apparently they weren't like the best of friends or anything necessarily that he thought that Vincenzoni thought himself above the Western genre. Right. And so like for a guy like Petroni, like Westerns were like a thing he grew up on, like he loved. Well, for, for a few dollars more was released in 1965. That was a sequel to Fistful of Dollars, uh, which was based on the Akira Kurosawa movie, uh, Yojimbo. That's a whole series we can talk about later because I love, love those movies. And I love Yojimbo and Sanjuro, the Akira Kurosawa movies. So uh, that that's a whole other conversation. But they after after the success of Fistful of Dollars, of course, they, w- they went to make a sequel. And that was Vincent Zoni's first collaboration with Leone. Uh, Vincent Zoni wrote the screenplay. It was based on a story idea by Sergio Leone. And that film was incredibly popular, possibly even more popular than the first film, which led to the two of them collaborating on what is possibly 
the most famous spaghetti Western of all time, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which was released in 1966, a year later. And the success of those films kind of led to some tension between the two, between Vincent Zoni and, and Leone, because Leone was kind of resentful over sharing credit and sharing profits with his screenwriter. And they kind of had a falling out after that. And they would later reconnect, but it was after that falling out with Leone that Vincent Zoni went to work with director Giulio Petroni on a new spaghetti Western, which was one that would sort of try to emulate Leone's signature tone. I mean, visually, this is very, I think Death Rides a Horse is the most like a Leone movie visually than any other spaghetti Western that wasn't directed by Sergio Leone. Feels like, like that's, uh, that's part of that thing that like, you showed up in the right year too. Like, cause now like people are used to the Leone things and then right. now you've got a movie that feels like one. And if you're familiar at all with like a few dollars more, we talk about Kill Bill lifting things from this movie. It lifted things from a few dollars more, uh, like with the massacre and like kind of the story of the two guys. Like so there's like stuff it's emulating a little oh, bit. Oh, I mean, John Philip Law's character is dressed just like Clint Eastwood's character. Yeah, true, the, true. I kept uh, thinking, like, I've seen that outfit before, but I couldn't put my finger on yeah. it. Yeah. I was reading somewhere, too, that the that the original title for this script was called, like, Duel in the Wind. And yeah. then Lee Van Cleef, he was having a conversation with John Philip Law, and Law mentioned, this is like a man-to-man story or something, and Van Cleef said, well, why don't they call it from man-to-man? And, then, like, the Italian producers saw that, heard that, and they liked how it sounded in Italian, which I, yeah. I would F up, but it's like De Uomo, uh, Uomo or something like that. I'm probably screwing yeah. that up. Mm. But, man uh, to a man is what it yeah. translates to. Yeah. But they used it and then, you know, it eventually got retitled to Death Rides a Horse. Uh, For the U.S. They're speaking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Law says he never liked that aspect of it. It's and very it's, biblical. Yeah. Sounding. And it's supposedly now in like European markets and stuff, it still gets sold with that other title on it or something. Oh, yeah. So. So Giulio Petroni had begun his filmmaking career in the early 1950s. He started out doing like political short films before making his feature film debut with a 1959 comedy actually called La Centro Kilometri, which means like the last kilometer or something like that. I think I think it's the last kilometer. Oh, fine. Uh, or uh, anyway, I, I don't speak Italian, so I apologize to any Italian speakers who might. It's our third biggest market. Yeah, it, it is. <laughs> I do apologize for any of these Grazie. names that I'm going to, to fuck up because I am doing my best. <laughs> but it was kind of the, the spaghetti westerns that he would make. He made about five of them in all in a row that he would kind of become known for. And the first of those westerns was Death Rides a Horse. And he had grown up as a fan of American Westerns and a a fan of American Western uh, novels. He grew up reading these things. And he said about that, he said, what intrigued me most in the idea of the West was this aspect of adventure, of nature in its purest state. I was attracted by the idea to make an adventure movie that reminded me of the books I loved when I was a child. So he, like Gary mentioned, he grew, he was a fan of these movies. He loved Westerns growing up. And he was kind of trying to bring the images that his mind conjured up in those novels to life in making this movie. Well, I even made, I made the joke to my wife, um, you know, as I was sitting down to watch these, I was like, if you're looking for a great American Western, trust the Italians. And, but it, 
you know, in going into it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, how after Snow White premiered, the Japanese started doing things that were heavily influenced by Walt Disney's animation. And it's just so much fun to see how the one art influences someone else somewhere else who brings their own spin to it. And it and it creates this big layered cake of of fun art. Well, yeah, I mean, if you go back to. Uh, Akira Kurosawa's movies. Yojimbo. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have seen Yojimbo. If you haven't, I highly, highly recommend it. It's incredibly entertaining. It's my personal favorite Kurosawa movie. It is a samurai movie, but a one that is very much inspired by American Westerns. Uh, has a lot of the same tropes as an American Western. It's a, a, a loner guy comes into a town to clean things up, you know. Cool. It was inspired by the American Western. And then ironically, got remade by Sergio Leone as Fistful of Dollars in a film that is sort of emulating American Westerns because that's what Spaghetti Westerns were. Spaghetti Westerns were emulating American Westerns, but even American Westerns are heavily stylized versions of history and not at all like what things were really like in the West. So this this whole like circle of influence that is... It's one big like chicken or egg. Like, yeah. well, it's it was this. No, but it was actually emulating this. And then and, no, and it, that I and mean it's funny to see people this. get it's funny to see people get pissed off about it either. I think like Toho sued Leoti or something for Yeah, yeah, because he didn't credit uh Kurosawa, but it was it's very much a uh a remake. I mean the Magnificent Seven is also a remake of the Seven Samurai, another oh, Kurosawa yeah, movie. So yeah. You know, it wasn't the first or the last time that happened. God, you're absolutely right. This series could be huge. Yeah, yeah. If you just just go into an entire Kurosawa, Leone circle of Western samurai, like all the influences that go back and forth, it's pretty wild. It's it's funny, like listening to the interview with um, Alex uh, Trebek. Alex Trebek. Rest in peace. (laughs) No, Alex Cox. God, I couldn't remember. Director of Repo Man, one of my favorite movies. When he's talking about the thing, like, you know, I was telling Justin before we started rolling, like, he goes into so much deep stuff. Like, there's just no way we need to tackle everything. But I will say this for him. He does talk about uh, Petroni, this being his first Western. He'll go on to make, like, five more, I think. Even, But he does a film about the Mexican Revolution called uh, Tepepa, which he considers his best movie. And Alex Cox is telling stories about being in rooms where he would like get to meet folks like Petroni and like everybody's asking him like which do you like more is Death Rides a Horse right Death Rides a Horse he's like to Peppa is my best movie and they're like no <laughs> no <laughs> to Peppa's pretty I've never seen it but it's very well regarded in fact I, I looked up uh, the the Spaghetti Western database they, they actually spoke to Quentin Tarantino about his favorite uh, Spaghetti Westerns and of course this was on there this was number seven I think so this isn't even at the top uh, Good the Bad and the Ugly is at the top because it's the best of them, but uh, but yeah, to Peppa is in the top 10 as well. I can't remember exactly where I think it's it's either one before or right after this. I think this and like Day of Anger and to Peppa were all right there together. Uh, the but the top ones were the Leone and like the Django movies. I think uh, that's one that I want to watch because I, as I was researching this episode, I, I read a lot about to Peppa and I had never even heard of it, but Same. so I, yeah, I, I didn't I know about to go back and watch it now. It's pretty cool too. It's like at the story, you know, about the the whole Mexican Revolution thing. It just seems like an interesting, uh, and it's also I forget, forgive me, the writer of that, but he also apparently was very good at like fitting like political allegory into the story. So there's like right. a huge political message in it and stuff. It's uh, pretty deep, apparently. And it's got Orson Welles in it, and I want to see a spaghetti western with Orson Welles in it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. it was 
It was producers Alfonso Sansoni and Enrico Chorsiki. It was their idea to make a Western. They approached Petroni about this and they asked him, you know, if he'd be interested to make a Western. And by the time they approached him, you know, they already had in mind kind of what they wanted to do, not necessarily the script, but they knew one thing. They knew they wanted Lee Van Cleef as their star. Who yeah. wouldn't? <laughs> exactly, right? God bless him. <laughs> That's a... Uh, that guy, he's like, I was watching it this the second time around, and I was like, man, if I watch some more of these, like Lee Van Cleef could be up there. Like any one of Lee Van Cleef's movies could be right up there with like Quint from Jaws. I was like, there's something about him nice. to me that he's I just. He's a badass, yeah. man. He just yeah, he's looks a like a badass. <laughs> he's a badass. And so Lee Van Cleef was born in New Jersey in 1925. Joined the Navy at the age of 17, where he was assigned to a submarine chaser and then to a minesweeper. And his ship, uh, he was on the USS, he was later uh, assigned to the USS Incredible. They participated in the landings in southern France during World War II. So the dude, like, not only saw combat, but he saw some shit. Yeah, I was going to say, he, he saw some heavy shit, man. Yeah. <laughs> After leaving the Navy, he kind of found, he, he was discharged, honorably discharged after his service and we he, should we should clarify too for the folks the younger folks uh people maybe people our age too that mind sweeping back then was a lot more difficult than on the pc people i was about to say people <laughs> our age might know the thing on the pc but anyone younger than us yeah you're right know what talking about <laughs> because that is some old remake mind sweeper you cowards <laughs> is that what minecrafter is is that what minecraft is probably <laughs> <laughs> we're old no, i don't know i tried to play among us last night i downloaded it oh, I, I did that a few weeks ago and i was I like downloaded i downloaded no my switch and i was like i played for 10 minutes and i just walked around this building and i'm like what the fuck am i supposed to do i don't understand this <laughs> jennifer's jennifer's been <laughs> playing it feels uh, like to be old yes because like we were in bed the other night jennifer like plays like she she loves her mom games like candy crush style games you know those yeah. kind of things and uh so i'm like what's this among us thing like it's super popular and memed all the time i'm gonna download it and play it and i sat there on my phone trying to play that stupid fucking game and the whole time <laughs> she was like do you like it and i'm like i don't know well i think you I have to play it with other happening. people like otherwise it doesn't there were work. other people in there oh, okay and the only time <laughs> i ever communicated with them was when somebody would like bring us in to accuse someone and they'd be like i think i did that on accident actually because uh i was just seeing what it did and they all gather around and they're like why 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 do you say red and i'm like i don't know i don't know <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like that's that's the one is red the one what is the one what are we doing <laughs> what is uh, so after leaving the navy lee van cleef found a love for acting he he, have to, he read for a part in our town he got the job and he kind of that kind of led to a little bit of a stage career for him. He worked on stage for a few years before making his big screen debut or his uh, screen debut period in Stanley Kramer's High Noon. High Noon, of course, is a incredibly famous western. Yeah, uh, one one of the best out there. And so Stanley Kramer had noticed Van Cleef during a performance of one of his plays in Los Angeles, and he offered him a role. He originally wanted him for the role of the deputy in the film, one of the one of the main roles. But he wanted Van Cleef to have his, and this is a quote from Kramer, his distinctive nose fixed. And <laughs> Lee Van Cleef uh, decided he didn't want to do that. And he ended up playing the part of the silent gunslinger, Jack Colby. And after that role, he was kind of typecast as playing mostly 
villainous roles throughout his career because he looks like a villain. I mean, he's got only bad uh, guys have a honk or like an one, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> he's got he's got a pointy like he's got those high cheekbones. He's got those eyes that are like a permanent squint, kind of you know. Mm-hmm. And he's got kind of that like pointy face. He's got like a pointy nose, like a, almost like a hawk's beak. I mean, it's I'm not trying to be offensive, but he, like he he looks like a villain. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he'll he say himself that being born with beady eyes was the best thing that ever happened to him. <laughs> but his career never truly took off in a big way until Sergio Leone cast him in For a Few Dollars More, where he started, along, started alongside Clint Eastwood. And then he followed that up by role as the main antagonist in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And after that kind of one-two punch of two very popular films and major roles in those popular films, he became a major star of spaghetti westerns. Now, we don't have time to get into, or at least this is not the series, I think, where we're going to get into the long history of spaghetti westerns. But if you've seen, let's say, Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so... I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Leo's character in that kind of a washed up actor. Yeah. uh, Looking for a second career. And he gets a job going to Italy to make a spaghetti Western. And that's kind of what happened a lot of times. Uh, A lot of times actors who couldn't really get either their career had stagnated or their career had kind of hit a wall, or maybe their career never truly had taken off. They would get cast in spaghetti Westerns because the, the Italian directors wanted these Americans to play cowboys in their movies. Of course. Uh, there's a lot more that goes into this. I mean, also most Italian spaghetti westerns were filmed in Spain, not in Italy. So there's there's a lot about a, a spaghetti westerns that I don't. I was think I was wondering really about that. I was like, is that really the Italy? I mean, is that no? Yeah, Italy they they film like? most they film most of these movies in Spain. There uh-huh. were there were sets that are in it that are built around Italy or like yeah, right there outside. are there are but but any of most of the uh, on location the gorge location too was in Italy from what the blu-ray commentary told me uh-huh. <laughs> so i but that there's that's kind of the very very short very simplified version of what's going on here but that's the kind prison, of what the prison that he comes out of is in spain though it's a spanish fort and uh, right behind the camera is a beach also from the blu-ray commentary you're welcome Thank you. You don't have to say it's from the Blu-ray commentary every time. <laughs> I just felt like that's a weird random thing for me to throw in here without just acknowledging, like, since we're talking about it, that's a thing I heard. I didn't even put that in my notes. I just, for some reason, I remember random ass shit. Yeah, but, but that's what kind of happened with Lee Van Cleef is that, you know, he was a guy who he was older and his career had never really taken off. And then Sergio Leone cast him. And the same thing kind of happened with Clint Eastwood, which, again, that's something we'll get into probably on a series on the Leone movies. But Clint Eastwood had been a star uh, of television before those movies. But those movies, you know, his career in Hollywood wasn't really taking off in the in the movies until Leone cast him as the man with no name. And then, of course, you know, the rest is history. Mm. He, he'd almost he'd almost given up on acting completely like he, he had Van Cleef Van Cleef. Yeah. Had had been doing stuff here and there, and he he had taken up painting. Like he's apparently a painter, and he was switching Jeez. over to that to try to be his like full time gig. And then he hit with a few dollars more. Like I, I think in 1959, I was reading about him. He got into a car accident, lost his left kneecap. So that the doctors are like, "What? You're not gonna you're not gonna be able to no. ride a horse again." And like he lost his whole kneecap. Yeah, so that's what it said. Lost straight up lost his kneecap. Wow. And uh, said, you're not going to be able to ride horses and stuff. And then he's just like, well, fuck. 
because yeah, that's the only thing I'm doing now. <laughs> right. But it took six months therapy and he was back on a horse again. So, wow. you know, he beat that, but he was, he was learning painting and stuff like that. He'd kind of given up on it. And that'd be a fun little uh, thing to have a Van Cleef hanging in your house. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. But then it was just like lightning you know, struck for it because, or whatever. It's just like he had a few dollars more. And so these are like US release states, I think, but in like a few dollars more in May of 67, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly in December 67. The Big Gun Down, which is another one of Tarantino's favorites, was like August of 68, Death Rides a Horse in 69. Those are the, the US release dates, but they were hitting in like the other countries before. Like all in the span of just a few years, Van Cleef was in hot shit like he was wow he was the man and and yeah mostly as a villain like we pointed out before he i, I saw a quote with him he just said uh bad guys have always been my bag i look i look mean without even trying audiences just naturally hate me i could play a role <laughs> in a tuxedo and people would just think i was rotten you could do much more with the villain part anyway movies are full of leading men most of them aren't working it's harder to find a good villain well hey i mean and and that's the thing so his co-star in this is a guy named John Philip Law. And John Philip Law has done some interesting stuff, but he doesn't have the recognizability or the career that someone like Van Cleef does. Because John Philip Law is a handsome dude, blonde hair, blue eye, you know, like typical leading man look. Yeah. But kind of bland. He's not 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 terribly distinctive. So John Philip Law was born in Los Angeles in 1937. He was the son of an LA County deputy named John Law, which sounds made up. Yeah. <laughs> See, I, I thought when I saw his name, I was like, that has to be a stage name. No. Who says there's no such thing as destiny? <laughs> <laughs> so in college, John Philip Law was in several stage productions, decided he wanted to be an actor like his mother. His mother was an actress. Uh, not, not, not terribly well known, but she was an actress as well. And he'd become a pretty successful stage actor before making the jump to the screen where he acted actually in several Italian productions. He was working a lot in Italy. Ironically, it was these Italian films that he made that finally got the attention of film producers back in his home country because director Norman Jewison saw some of these films and thought that he'd be perfect for a role in his film, a film called The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming. So he cast John, John Law in this, and that film was a major success, and it launched Law's career in Hollywood. It led to a role in Otto Preminger's Hurry Sundown. Mm -hmm. So that film... In that film, he co-starred with Faye Dunaway and Jane Fonda. So he's he's in a, this is a, this is a nice. major Hollywood production. Yeah. When it came time after this for Fonda to make Barbarella, she actually recommended Law for the film. She wanted him in it. And production on Barbarella was actually delayed so that Law could star in Death Rides a Horse. Wow. He What's would later end up, they ended up playing, doing Barbarella afterwards, and he did end up playing the angel in Barbarella a year later that came out in 1968. And in that same year, he actually also played the title role in Mario Bava's Danger Diabolique. Yeah, so, so definitely the, another cinema shock movie. The the cool part for for this movie is that I mean, by the time it's rolling around and getting like word of mouth or like known, I mean, these two guys, Van Cleef and Law, are like big budget actors right. at a certain point, and so yeah. it's kind of cool that you have both of them in this movie you know it was of course it was obviously like we said cast before either of them were really huge but yeah because you know, barbarella came out in 68 this movie came out in 67 but didn't come out in america 
until 69 after Barbarella had already hit. And so then it was like a bigger deal because of that. Like those two guys, the only the major stuff I could find about law, like just that he, you know, he got hired, but he didn't know anything about the uh, cowboy stuff. He said like horse riding and twirling his gun and all of that. So the Italians had cowboy school. They put him through like nice. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they got him uh, learned up, but he's a smart dude, man. He is fluent in like a, italian and german and french and wow. all of these things like he knows like four different languages at least so he's a uh, that's awesome him got him work i guess death rides a horse also marked the first of several collaborations between petroni and composer Ennio morricone who we commented on a little bit earlier but i think that his score in this film is legitimately one of his best scores uh like it is up there top two or three or Neo Morricone scores uh, with or without the con like the, con- it works so great in the context of the film. And it really proves how much a great score can elevate a fairly low budget movie. Oh into yeah. Some- into something bigger. Like it just makes it feel epic, you know, yeah. at all times. Just, you just throw in the Blu-ray of the movie. And I, I had not seen this movie before. So like you just, throw in the blu-ray of the movie and that title screen coming up with that major like theme playing something about that just like there is an epicness yeah that, like i don't know i was like i'll say it i was kind of giddy about starting the movie i was like yeah. what what is this this sounds fun and then <laughs> if you go to the trailer that damn trailer then you're like the trailer is holy great. shit i want to yeah, see this movie so great. bad right now <laughs> and uh but it lives up to it i liked it <laughs> So the film was released in August of 1967 in Italy. It was released in 1969 in the U.S. and the U.K. And reviews were pretty lukewarm on this film. Uh, Here is an excerpt from a review from a writer named A.H. Weiler. This was published in July of 69. So this was a review that was written at the time of release. It says, Death Rides a Horse, which rocked the DeMille Theater yesterday like a convention of drunken firecracker salesmen, is proof in stark (laughs) colors once again of the indestructibility of the spaghetti western produced continuously and cheaply over the last five years by italians in spain with an imported hollywood rawhide or two to ramrod the gory goings on as usual the clutter of cliches is exceeded only by the excessive sound and fury and then he goes on at the end of his review this is actually the last sentence of that review vengeance is a dish that must be eaten cold mr van cleef observes philosophically he's right Death Rides a Horse is not so hot. So It's tough, uh, man. I, I saw like uh, Ebert gave it like one star. Ebert gave it a bad review as well. But yeah. Ebert also, did you read Ebert's full review? Oh, yeah. I have a quote here from it that okay. I, I Go loved. Ahead. Uh, because he definitely calls it a bad movie, references Pauline Kale and like mm-hmm. her trying to talk about uh, explaining the fun that can be found in the right kind of bad movie. And he says, Death Rides a Horse is a bad movie indeed. But then yeah. he says quote from his review he says and yet there's something about surrendering yourself to a dark womb-like security of a large loop theater on a saturday afternoon and hunkering down in your seat and simply abandoning yourself to a movie like this from time to time you will laugh or be thrilled or distract yourself by noticing that some of the outdoor scenes are shot in a studio with backdrops uh what he says in parentheses at one point the hero casts a shadow across an entire mountain range Uh, (laughs) or you can try to unravel the puzzles of mistaken or double identity upon which the plots of spaghetti westerns always seem to depend the heroes of these films would save a lot of time if they'd accept one simple rule of thumb generally speaking everyone they meet is either 
A, the man who killed their families 15 years ago. B, <laughs> a stranger who was after the same villains for a mystery, mysterious reason of, your, of their own. Or C, their father, brother, or son. <laughs> it's so it's such a fun review because yes he gives it one star and so and he calls it a bad movie but he's like yeah but sometimes this is like exactly what you want to watch and i don't agree that this is a bad movie with you know but you know but because i actually think this is a really great movie personally well i was just gonna say i mean there were to, to be honest i was fully prepared for this to be not great because there's an early on uh, shootout in the saloon. I think it's where I think it's where Bill is meeting up with four aces. Calhoun. Calhoun, yeah. right? That sounds right. Yeah. Four aces. Um, yeah. Or Callaway or I forget. His we name. know who anyway, you're talking about. Four aces. Guy, anyway, I, I kept calling him Al Swearingen the whole time. Looked, <laughs> so he looks like Ian McShane. He draws and, you know puts you know four into into four aces and then he puts like two more into another guy and then like three more into another guy and i, I looked at my wife and i was like how many fucking bullets does he have in that revolver <laughs> the next thing is like there's there's ryan and he kind of explains like you know better you know you got to watch your back or whatever i was just like and he's like you put four bullets into that dude what the hell and, then, yeah. like, and i was like okay so this isn't they knew what they were doing stupid. they know what they're doing i'm like okay cool 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 so i think i was like a little trepidatious at first but after that i was like okay i mean see i was sold because I, I i think we this was all a first time watch for all of us i believe yeah yeah i was sold after that opening sequence that opening sequence was a horror movie. Like I was oh, about to yeah. say the same thing. It starts fucking, off like an Italian horror movie. It's more a than fucking it's like slasher a movie, like yeah. three credits. Ooh. And it is way more brutal than you expect it to open. And it's like a great, great opening to this movie. And you automatically like, you're like, we're in the shit. Like, this is great. And, you know, these movies, they don't have like a ton of, they, 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 they have a lot of silent characters. You know, people, there's not a ton of dialogue mm-hmm. in spaghetti westerns. But the dialogue that is in this, man, there's some gems. My do, favorite. Do you know? My, oh, go. Well, well. Let me say this first. Uh, just the dialogue thing. What's interesting is, is I, w- I was studying on this a little bit, and Clint Eastwood and Van Cleef separately both say the same exact thing: that when you go to do a spaghetti western, when you go to do an Italian film altogether, they say the first, and maybe it was Law who said this that Van Cleef gave him this tip. It was like the very first thing you need to know is get ready to dump the dialogue, like dump a bunch of dialogue, I think is actually the exact phrase because they're wordy and they have like a ton of stuff, but then they end up digging it more. If you can like, just express what you need to say in like three lines. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So that's yeah. always like, apparently the way it came across is like, it's, it's ad lib by these guys. A lot of times wow. just like, how do I get this back? Like there's a scene where they're, under the ridge and Van Cleef it's the first time law takes his horse and it's like, you know, it leaves him in his gun and you're going to need this grandpa. But it's like, you watch that scene and they're like, there's like one to two lines each time one of them speak Cox on the commentary was saying, I had the original script of this movie. And he was like, and that was, he was like a page of dialogue between wow. those two people. He's like, but these guys are just like dropping like one to two lines each just like back and forth and they get the point across and they move on. Yeah. And Ryan Lee Van Cleef's character in, in particular, I think has just some of the best dialogue, some of my favorite yeah. stuff, my, my favorite, I think, and it's hard to pick a favorite 
because there's the okay so some runners up like there's one where he's getting his gun back when he gets out of jail yeah and he's like 27 you have a good memory and he says something like i had six in my one and 21 in my belt if they hadn't double crossed me the count had been might have been a little different like that is such a <laughs> badass line yeah that is yeah. great really uh good. It, but 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 my favorite i think is when they're about to have the duel and he says piano player hit three notes yeah and that is oh. just such a badass line. <laughs> oh, I wanted to go there because yeah, Todd was talking about that scene. I was like, do you really think they do that? Like, why like what would they have done to four aces if he'd have just been like, fuck that? Yeah. <laughs> just like yeah. shot the guy. <laughs> right. Like, and is there just like a code of honor there with those guys? But but something and that's that Bill, I should I should preference that's John Law's character. But yeah. but but one of the things you know you mentioned it earlier is uh Petroni was coming off a comedy film and his next film after this is a comedy film, if I'm not mistaken. And so he has like some comedy instincts because, you know, you mentioned earlier law being kind of bland. Like, uh, I mean, he's got a good look, you know, he's six, four. He's sure. Like, he looks super like thin. a Hollywood. Yeah. He looks like yeah, a Hollywood yeah. movie star, but there's something in this movie that the script serves him. Like the way they got these lines across and shot them, uh, I loved him in this movie. Like yeah. he just he just had good stuff. Like when uh, Van Cleef is like telling him, like, you know, you need to back off a little bit uh, from this guy because you're you're gonna end up making me mad. And he's just like, well, I'm gonna find out who he is, and if you see who I think he is, better get ready to be mad. <laughs> yeah. just like has that. Yeah. or like when he gets in the duel with the one guy in the bar where he saves the the server and stuff and he's just like the guy's like oh you, you blah 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 he says something to him and he's like you've got a stupid face but you get it yeah <laughs> that's the guy who says what he says uh it's one of the henchmen he's like what are you trying to say i'm afraid you got a stupid face but you get it like, yeah it's like i'm like awesome. this movie is full of badass lines that's awesome it's, it's great incoming transmission Hey folks, it's your old friend Mr. Todd A. Davis from the Cinema Shock Podcast here to ask, are you tired of seeing a random episode of Star Trek and thinking, hmm, I wonder where this falls into the overall prime timeline? I know I am. That's why I'm bringing you a new podcast covering the entire Star Trek franchise in chronological order. It's called Computer Resume Podcast. Each week, join me and a rotating panel of my family and friends as we boldly talk Trek like no one has before there's a joke to be made we'll make it and if there's a poignant discussion to be had well we'll try our best we'll also have interviews contests take listener questions and other things currently deemed classified by section 31 those shifty motherfuckers <coughs> so join us every week starting in january of 2021 for the computer resume podcast free wherever you get your podcasts and be the first to hit us up online now at Computer Resume on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or email us directly at computerresumepodcast at gmail.com. The Computer Resume Podcast, part of the Slice of Fry Gold Network. Hashtag LLAP. We'll see you soon. Well, yeah, we talked about the, the, I guess, contemporary reviews at the time that it was released being not so great. And if you go read them, there's a, there's a lot of not so great reviews that came out at the time. But there are some, uh, I'm willing to bet, Gary, there are some present day reviewers of this film that might not have uh, have joined the cult as we seem to have. Justin, you know that somebody watched this movie and now that somebody needs a nap.
let's see here. Um, there were some good ones. I, I, I saved a couple here. Uh, Jerry L on Amazon gave it one out of five stars. He said, worst movie I've ever attempted to watch as far as quality goes. He says, uh, you, you'll tell right off the bat, his this was not his bag either. But he says, uh, spaghetti western, I've always hated these. I should have known when it said Lee Van Cleef that it was just another spaghetti western. But this one has to be... <laughs> this one has to be the worst picture quality I've ever seen in my life. The sound is bad. To me, the spaghetti western always seemed to be thrown together with the cheapest of cameras, the cheapest of sound equipment, the lowest of budgets. I look back on Clint Eastwood in his film career, and I've always wondered how he ever got where he was by playing in the spaghetti westerns that he played in. I watched about 15 seconds of this movie, jumped ahead in the movie, and saw this for what it was, another worthless spaghetti western, and I knew I wasn't going to waste my time on it. I turned it off, deleted it from my watch list, and that is the extent of my experience with this movie. I thought from the title and the intro that it would be a good movie. 45 seconds showed me I was mistaken. If you like cheap made spaghetti westerns that are really bad quality, this is a must see for you. Good luck. So he's <laughs> judging this based on 45 seconds mm-hmm. of film and giving it one star. And I I will say he he comments on the quality of the picture. Now, yeah. I originally attempted to watch this on Amazon Prime because yeah, it's on right. there. It's on yeah, there twice. That's where I watched it. Which is unfortunate, even though I texted yeah. you and told you not to watch it on there. After uh, I yeah, too. Justin did mention that. And <laughs> because uh, don't it watch looks, it on Amazon Prime, apparently. Don't watch it on Amazon Prime because it looks like somebody took a beat up VHS and then transferred it, like digitally transferred it to Amazon Prime and didn't, like it's still in that that full screen aspect ratio, that yeah. 1.33, it's, it's panned. It's it's a horrible transfer, but there's a great Blu-ray of it out, and if you get it through like uh, I I got it through Vudu, and I think it's the same transfer they're using on the Blu-ray because it looks and sounds outstanding. I was about to say it's so weird because yeah, when I was watching this Blu-ray, which is how I I bought it, and it one of my biggest things was just how beautiful it was. (laughs) It's a great looking movie. I think it looks amazing, and, it really and is a great yeah, movie. and the sound is awesome. But just uh, I, I love everything about the camera work in this movie, and just like just the close-ups they do, which I think also is a thing Tarantino takes. So it's like oh, yeah. close-ups on the eyes and the oh sure panning, and I just that's fucking great. Well, there so, even even with the poor quality of the transfer, there's a couple shots where even as I was watching it, it was just like. Well, that looks fucking good. Like, I mean, yeah. and, and even with that poor quality, which I think speaks to the quality of the making of the film. So, Gary, uh, did you have any other? Yeah, I had one more here from uh, Bob Zerunkel. He gave it a one out of 10 on IMDb and said the real plot was how to get people to pay to see this tripe. <laughs> uh, Sounds like a typical <laughs> Zerunkel move. Yeah. <laughs> Zerunkel. Oh, Zerunkel. Two Italian guys who once made some good movies about a guy who stands around and sometimes shoots people decide that they're going to do another movie about a guy who stands around and sometimes shoots people. For the guy who stands around and sometimes shoots people, they selected John Law. My understanding of this decision is that they saved money by hiring a model since he's not going to be acting anyway. So the guy who stands around and sometimes shoots people decides that the next people he shoots are going to be the other guys who shoot people. 
To help him out, he finds another guy who stands around and sometimes shoots people. The Italian guys cast Van Cleef in that role because he built a career out of standing around and sometimes shooting people. Plus, he's bald, which makes it a lot easier to tell which guy standing around and sometimes shooting people is which. The Italian guys decide that the plot is going to be the same basic plot as their big hit, but they put a big twist in it. Oh my. The twist is that Van Cleef isn't the bad. This time, he's the ugly. And he lives up to it. Oh, and the guns sound just like the guns in the Italian guy's hit movie. You know, the one with the plot and the good actor. That guy thinks he's very <laughs> clever. You just know, like, he was type, Zeruncles in the in his basement typing that shit, in his mom's basement typing that up, and just just giggling at how clever he is. Must be, it must, it must suck to be so unhappy. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's disappointing. Um, <laughs> I did want to mention that Anthony Dawson, who plays uh, Four Aces, there was a, a, there's a big cons- not conspiracy. What's the word? Just uh, just confusion in Italian cinema because there is an Italian B movie director named Antonio Margariti, uh, but he went under a pseudonym, Anthony M. Dawson, oh. and so like people are like. Oh, Anthony M. Dawson. Now he's, is he the actor, Anthony Dawson? And then they see, apparently there was a rumor that also Anthony M. Dawson did uncredited script work on uh, Death Rides a Horse. And so it confused it even that's more. very confusing, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Anthony Dawson that's in this movie, by the way, is another one of those guys who just has a face to be a villain. You know, because he's he's uh, two James Bond villains. He is. He's two James Bond villains. <laughs> he's he's in he's in Doctor No, where he plays. I think it's Professor Dent, who is like Doctor No's, not really his right hand man, but he's kind of working for Doctor No, and he's kind of responsible for getting Bond to Doctor No's lair. Anyway, uh, but he's also he, he does play Blofeld in From Russia with Love, which is the very next James Bond movie. It's <laughs> super weird that you would do that. But I will yeah, say this for Anthony Dawson, not taking anything away from uh, Wa- Wallace. Well, is that the last guy? The Walcott. Walcott. I don't know. Yeah, Walcott. Luigi Pastilli. Yeah. I like Anthony Dawson's villain face better. So I was yes. more on board with him. I expected him to honestly to be the main bad guy because he looks like he should be the main bad guy. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And it seemed like he yeah. already had control. He's like the kingpin. He's got his little, little shitty bar and his yeah. Like, and Luigi Pastilli is uh, Luigi Pastilli is one of these guys who also appeared in a bunch of spaghetti westerns. He was also in for a few dollars more, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's in the Great Silence. He's also in some Giallo. So, you but, know, but like in, that, in the good, the bad, and the ugly, I think he plays. If I'm not mistaken, he plays like a priest. He plays something. a priest. Yep. Yeah. He so sure does so he does he doesn't have the villain face. He could also be the sweet priest guy. It can't have a villain face. I but mean, I guess this looks- villain also had to be a politician and maybe they looked at uh, Anthony. Wow, Dawson what a stretch. Like- <laughs> <laughs> Every like- villain in this movie ended up being uh, politicians and business owners. And- oh, man. <laughs> anyway, 
This well, movie- I was going to say maybe they thought Anthony Dawson couldn't look like a politician that people would actually like, but we've also seen that that can happen still. <laughs> sure can. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait a minute. What are you guys referencing? I, I don't understand. Recent history. We'll just leave it at that. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> so, the, Carter, the Carter administration. That's true. Gotcha. If Amy Carter yeah. looks I'm like on board. a uh, if ever, Western villain. If ever a president looked villainous, it's Jimmy Carter. <laughs> yep. I got it. Yep. I'm with you. I, I lead Jimmy Carter is more John Law than he is anything <laughs> else. Like just like, what does Jimmy Carter look like? I don't know. He's <laughs> just like a grandpa. <laughs> it's like somebody's grandpa. Oh, they're mm. picking peanuts. Is that what you do? You pick them? Yeah. I, I, that, that's probably why he didn't get the second term. It was just like, <laughs> who is not, that guy? Not villainous <laughs> looking enough. <laughs> Anyway, so yes, some people do not like this movie as as uh, proven by some of those reviews that Gary read. But of course, in, in recent years, this movie has gained a pretty big cult following, largely due to the admiration of Quentin Tarantino. Of course, that is not necessarily mutual admiration because I found a more a recent interview with Mr. Petroni where he is asked about Kill Bill. And he he's, you know, kind of, th- he's thankful that, Tarantino has gotten the the film in front of more people because he's he's like it's funny when you read a lot of these Italian directors interviews they're very let's say confident in themselves yeah right <laughs> <laughs> but uh he, so he's like yeah it's a great movie people should be watching it but Tarantino's admiration is kind of what got it in front of people but he says about Kill Bill he says I must admit that I found the film quite boring there's too much of everything. It's sort of cartoonish minestrone. I love that he went with wow. minestrone. <laughs> he went minestrone with it. Yeah, that's good. I mean, because I don't know. I think of minestrone like if I go to uh, Olive Garden or something. Minestrone like is yeah. good. Yeah, no, I'm not saying I don't like it. <laughs> My wife I'm makes a killer minestrone. I always I often wonder if it's like a thing where like Italian or people are like Americans only know minestrone. No, we know spaghetti, we know lasagna, we know pizza, we know bologna, we know mortadella. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, he sounds, uh, I don't know what happened at, uh, to Petroni, but, you know, I saw it. There's like a spaghetti Western site, and forgive me, I can't remember the name of it. But Is it the Spaghetti Western database? Maybe that's the Also, one. what happened to Giulio Petroni? That's not a real thing. Is, is that a real died? thing? He died 10 years ago. What, the Spaghetti Western database? Yeah. yeah. And so yeah I've, already, I've already quoted it <laughs> twice on this episode. Yeah, I was about to say, we probably read the same interview because he goes on in that interview and he talks about like just, he feels like shut out because they talk about him working with uh, Morricone. And uh, he says, yeah, the, the collaboration them. And he was like, yeah, it would be a long lasting collaboration. I'd like to note that I made no less than six movies with Morricone. And they've never, they're never mentioned in articles. Never. When he deservedly won an Oscar for his entire career two years ago, Walter Veltroni delivered a very eloquent speech in which, among other things, he named all directors Morricone ever worked with, but he never mentioned me, nor one of my films. You tell me, what is the reason for this? Yeah, he's, he's salty about it. He's <laughs> yeah. a little salty about it. Jeez. So, I don't know. The, the guy in the interview says, like, I know your it's thoughts like his, on this. I think it's and his, they his, says, it's yes, his... let's move on. Yeah, it's his nephew interviewing him in that. It's a really great interview, actually. It's really entertaining. Yeah, it's it's entertaining. I just am like, what, what, what were his thoughts on this? I want to know. Yeah. So it's, I mean, I think it's it's kind of a shame 
that this movie took so long to be held in higher regard because I think it really is kind of one of the gems of the spaghetti western because a lot of people, a lot of Americans, especially if they know anything about spaghetti westerns, they know the films of Sergio Leone, which deservedly, I mean, but I feel like those films are a bit of an outlier in the genre. I mean, there are a lot, there are quite a few great spaghetti westerns. There's also a lot of not very good ones out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the exception of of Leone's movies, or I think Sir, Sergio uh, Corbucci, who did the Django movies, uh, another favorite of Tarantino's, his are very good. But a lot of spaghetti westerns can be pretty boring and they can be pretty uh, cliche, filled with cliches. And this one's no different as far as being filled with cliches. But what I think this has going for it, and this, this is, you could say the same thing about Leone's movies, is that they're about more than just these like Western tropes that they're using, which a lot of the spaghetti Westerns that were produced kind of co- coasted on that. But these, or or on the violence, because that was, you know, especially in the 60s, that was kind of a selling point because you weren't seeing that a lot in movies. Right. But I think Leone's movies and this movie have a sort of psychological drive to them. Like it's, it's not just like gunfights, like it's gunfights for a reason. Like there's, motivation behind it uh there is there's a, a writer that i read talking about this movie on a website called senses of cinema and he they, they called it a confused morality that this movie has which i think is really interesting because like something like the good the bad and the ugly even you know you've got people who have questionable morals who you're still kind of rooting for like lee van cleef's character is the most I think I root for him more in this movie than I do for Bill, for John Wayne. right? Because he's also oh, the yeah. guy that yeah, uh, fucking murdered the dude's family. I think, right. I think raped the mom and sister. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but which you don't necessarily find out till later, although it's not hard to guess right. know, that he was in on well, it. Well, well, that's the other thing, right? Like at the very beginning, for some reason, when he's getting out of jail, I'm like, well, that guy's obviously part of this gang. Like right. it's not a very good spoiler to know that or like not a very good reveal or because he's going after the gang the whole time so he was obviously involved with them somehow yeah i was gonna say not a very good twist the reveal still works and it still is okay like it's still i don't know i i I guessed that at the beginning of the movie but it was still cool like when it happened it didn't matter it doesn't affect your enjoyment of the movie but i I think that's interesting that you you kind of root for a guy who is very clearly a bad guy. I mean, we mm. we are met with him getting out of jail where he's been locked up for 15 years. Yes, he was framed, but he is still a criminal. But these movies, these films, and especially this one, they're about trauma and they're about retribution. They are revenge movies. They are like Kill Bill. They're stories of revenge. But it's revenge that's brought on by like a psychological trauma. Like these people were, something happened that fucked them up. Like, I mean, Death Rides a Horse is about a kid, a child who sees his, his entire family murdered. He sees his mother and sister raped and his entire life is sort of propelled by this incident. Everything he's living for is to get back at the men who did this. I mean, mm. you you kind of you kind of imagine a in the missing years in between are just him training because you see how good he is with his gun. And it's just like he's spent the last 15 years training for this moment where he finds these guys. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's one thing I'm sure we'll get into more and more as this this series progresses. But like the, the Tarantino uh, like draw to the vengeance story is, I mean, he, he talks a lot in interviews just about that. It's 
it's like the it's like a really easy common thread that like you could just imagine like you know it's used all the time this this kind of thing is now common but at the time it was that you you can relate to a vengeance story you can relate to like like a fantasy yeah it's Mm -hmm. a fantasy Mm -hmm. thing where people often will fantasize about getting revenge on somebody who has wronged them but this uh, they're uh, seeing it play out on screen something that they wouldn't necessarily do in real life well how about that i mean it's it's, it's wish it's wish for it's wish fulfillment exactly you know anybody that's done you wrong they may not have killed or raped your family but you know a slight you you kind of you kind of play that out in your head of just like oh hunt them down and gun them down in a bar (laughs) Right. We'll take this back to like, I mean, a good through line here is that, I mean, whether or not you intended it, I mean, here we are with uh, another series that like you could like connect it right back to Batman, you know, like it's just the the opening of like how Batman gets started. I mean, Batman's a Western story in like a, a different era or a different place, you know? Well, it's yeah, a- that, that, uh, that reoccurring theme of the fear, you know, it, that really, I mean, it really plays out in Batman, but you know, God, think of how scared that little kid must've been to to witness all that yeah. and what that would do to him moving forward in his life, you know? Well, well, they, they play that out in this movie too, dude. Like they, they, I mean, when they capture him after he shoots the one guy's brother, like Jose's brother or whatever, and, and I think that was legitimately his name. I don't mean to just throw out a name, but mm-hmm. like his, uh, you know, the, the one guy wants to kill him and then they're like, don't kill him. We got to take him so his brother can get vengeance or whatever. And they get there and even his brother wants to go ahead and kill him. And the one guy's like, no, we need to know like who this is, like what, what this thing is. And, and it makes it more interesting because it goes back to the Van Cleef saying revenge is best eaten cold or whatever. You know, we've heard that. Wrath of Cod, uh, you know, the Klingon says, uh, revenge is a dish best served cold. Which is quoted in the beginning of Kill Bill. Yeah, yeah. And (laughs) uh, and it's all about how, like, well, it's one thing to, like, get vengeance right away and, like, be, like, just angry and you fight back and you get it. But it it fucks everybody up so much more if you wait, like, 20 years later and then you just casually stalk them and kill them. And they don't know why. Like they yeah, can't, right. which is probably, you know, how they feel originally, yeah. you know? So it's like, you got to wait till there's like less emotional attachment to it. Like you can display less feeling in the moment to like, just casually murder these people. And, uh, and that's what's happening here. And they even get that. I feel like in the movie, they, they express that a little bit. Like, who is this guy? <laughs> Why is he right. doing this? Right, right. I think one of my favorite like visual motifs in the film is the use of these like red tinted close-ups of of yeah. uh, of Bill's eyes, which is happens anytime that he sees one of his family's assailants as an adult. And this is something that Quentin Tarantino uses. Another one of uh, the the things that Tarantino is blatantly taking from this movie, because anytime the bride finds a member of the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad, the people who wronged her, you get a close-up of her eyes. You get that superimposed vision of of her original of her attack and mm-hmm. now Tarantino throws this like siren sound over it that jacks it up even further i think yeah right. uh 
but it's a, I mean, that is 100% taken directly from this. And it's a great visual in this that I don't know that had ever been done before, or at least not in any spaghetti Western I've seen. It's, it's subtle. I mean, it's, it's unsubtle, excuse me. It's unsubtle, <laughs> but it's effective. Like you, you get exactly what's happening in his mind when he sees these people immediately, you know what he's thinking. Well, and, if I'm I mean, not it's mistaken. blood red. He's got blood on his mind. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, I mean, literally, when you get to Van Cleef's, when he's got the the skull necklace, and mm-hmm. there's in the anime sequence in Kill Bill, like one of them has like a ring that's a, a skull. skull ring. Yeah, yeah. So that's probably even just based on that. Oh, uh, absolutely. I, I would say it absolutely is, uh, because I mean, that's again his his background, his his story. Bill's story in this movie is essentially very similar to Oren Ishii's. Mm. We don't see the sequence where he becomes like a deadly assassin or anything, but again, you can imagine him training his entire life the last 15 years for vengeance, which is what she's doing. Let me throw this in there, there uh, and, and Justin, you can comment, or Todd, maybe, who I don't know even how much experience you have with spaghetti westerns. Are very on. little. Very little. I'll go okay. ahead and put that on Front Street. So I don't know when and if like you've seen like the good and the bad, the ugly, but I'll tell you something that I noticed about this too. And I read a little bit about it with Petroni. Um, So I bought the good and the bad and the ugly on like a special edition DVD that came in like a nice cardboard box and everything. I remember having Mm. seen it with my grandfather, who was the only person I ever watched Westerns with and uh, all of this stuff. So I was really excited to watch it. And the first time I watched the good, the bad and the ugly, when I got it, I thought it was fucking boring i thought it was not that great i thought it was really really boring and it took me a little bit to come around on the good the bad and the ugly and now i think it's like uh excellent cinema like some of the best ever but Mm. spaghetti westerns have a very like the italian sensibility for like making a spaghetti western it's more drawn out and it's longer than uh you know at the risk of sounding like leonard malton here you know when we used to play that game they're too long. Sometimes they, they, they feel like a lot. And uh, it's just like, get to the point, get to the next thing. This movie, by the way, though, like Petroni was very familiar with that. And he was very mm. familiar with set up from like American Westerns, like stuff mm. that he had grown up on. So the example I would say is like, the role of the sheriff at the beginning of this movie, like there's never any lawmen or any like that much of a narrative set up. Like it feels like in the dollars films, like they just kind of you're dropped in and this thing's happening and they slowly like explain the story to you as it's going on. But like they spend a good bit of time, I feel like on this movie, giving you something that's more Americanized than what normal spaghetti Westerns give you. And maybe I'm right. off base here, but just that the sheriff is like, like coming up to him on the porch, you know, and saying like, I know what's on your mind. I know what you've been thinking about. I knew your family better than anybody. And blah, blah, blah. You know, like there's like, there's, there's a structure to it. Like a more like setting it up, like making sure you're sure, you know, who this guy is. You know what he already went through at the beginning <laughs> and, you know, mm-hmm. now he's meeting this other guy. I don't know. They feel like they, I, I don't mean it to sound like Americans are idiots, but it just, it does feel like they're I like, mean. <laughs> no. it just does feel like they, they give you that stuff at the beginning yeah. of the movie. And it waits till about 30, 40 minutes into the movie before it just becomes another, like n- not just another, but like, 
the style of a spaghetti western. And right. Does all of that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Uh, I mean, and, and I think maybe that's why this one connects more than some of the other ones. That I think Leone's movies are very easy to follow and things. I mean, even if they don't have your typical t- Western tropes necessarily, I think that they work really well. But yeah, this one, it's very palpable. I mean, it's very, it's it's just entertaining from beginning to end. It is everything, honestly, that I think a spaghetti Western should be or a Western in general should be. Mm. Uh, it's it is visually really outstanding. I mean, I think that it's it's got a great visual style, obviously, and an amazing score by Morricone. Uh, it's got morally complex characters, which is something you don't always get with westerns, but it's always nice when you do. Mm-hmm. You know, I think all the best westerns have morally complex characters. Like, there's not a guy with a a white hat and a guy with a black hat, and and they're facing off against each other. I think it's way more interesting when everyone's to tell you that that doesn't gray. even matter. I mean, leaving Cleef like right around this time also is in like 16 episodes of Gunsmoke and yeah. always playing a different character. He's always the bad guy and he always dies. And he's just like <laughs> a different dude in each character. Cause nobody cares. No, nobody's like, it's just, uh, let's, this is a bad guy. Let's kill him. You know, like they don't like, it's never, it never matters, but truth be told, uh, Western should be a bit more complicated than that because you know and I think that's part of and I think that's part of what why the front end of this movie tends to move a little bit slower because there is a bit of a complicated plot and some important character development they do it at the front so that when it's the slow opening of the gate, you know, and just once that gate's completely open, here come the bulls. And then you're served up with the rest of the movie, which is, you know, to use a cliched phrase, action packed. Well, well I, I mean, I you say that, that, but I, I feel like they, they, I mean, the Italian part of it is, is there's still the moments of like rando, uh, you know, Bill's just, Violence down at a re- <laughs> I mean, there's there's violence, but I was gonna say, like, I mean, there's even the moments where he like sits down and like he stumbles upon the one dude, like in the you know, like he's going to the restaurant and then the gang shows up mm-hmm. and the lady's like, You gotta get out of here, and he's like, I don't give it, I don't, you know, she's like, They'll kill you, and he's like, Well, people don't kill me without my permission. <laughs> and, uh, and uh but but like that's like a lot, I mean there's weird slow moments of just character, I guess, but it's, I don't know. I don't, I would not say that. I always have an issue with, with something being called slow um, because I mean, and and not that there aren't movies and that, that do move slow, but there's a different misinterpreting here. But, but when he says like, it that, takes that, a little while and then it's action packed. I'm like, what's well, that all action packed? Like there's a lot of moments of like just sitting around and talking. Well, me and Gary have talked about this before where I, I take, I, th- I think sometimes when people say slow, they mean boring. And, and that doesn't, isn't always necessarily the same thing, uh, you know, cause something can be c- character development. <laughs> and right. that is not that is not boring to me. Uh, not that this movie has a ton of character development, but there's enough, you get enough especially with Bill's character to understand who he is and where he's coming from and everything. Well, there, so, there's like, I mean, you, you go from like an action scene to like, you know, I mean, there's the constant running 
for lack of a better word, gag that happens in the movie where it's like one guy takes the other guy's horse and then they try to get to the town next. And yeah. then like, there's like that part of it. And in between there's like sit down, talking it out moments between the two of them. And even you get that like time where like Van Cleef's like saying, you know, I wish I would have had a son like you. Like I can yeah. see that. Like, uh, you know, and uh, like the, I don't know. It's there's like, like there's weird moments of like it it's fun because it almost feels like a it almost feels like they've got like a friendly competition between them but it's right. not really that friendly but then they it they reluctantly team up and then they find a mutual even after they find out they by by time the big reveal is made they've made they've had such a connection with each other to where an understanding with each other that it's not like he's like, yeah, we let's finish this up, then you can kill me and I won't run. But it's Bill at that point has almost like changed his heart's been changed a little bit by this relationship between the two. Uh, it's it's really cool and it's something you don't see in a, a cliche Western very well. Often. It's complicated. I mean, the guy has obviously he's in a situation where like I don't know, Bill sees him as like who has been a father figure this whole time. And so for some reason, all of a sudden he's willing to have like some empathy for this guy who killed his family, which is morally like so complicated and just like fucked up. But like that, he's like, you were in a different place. Like, yeah, you know, and I'm well, in a bring, different place. And like, to bring it back to, to bring it back to kill bill. I mean, we see that at the end of kill bill volume two, where she's curled up on the floor crying. And then it turns to laughter like that, that relationship. Well, that's also an effect of the truth serum that Bill shoots her with because one of the side effects is euphoria. Right. But at the (laughs) same time, we're seeing, we're seeing the, we're seeing all of that sort of open up and blossom, you know, the, the, the complicated nature of the relationship between Bill and Beatrix and just i forget where i was going with this but i mean we see that it's not so simple and yeah even yeah i mean i think a quest, I think for, a quest for revenge is is rarely simple well and i think we'll get into it when we talk about kill bill but i think that's one of the great things about that movie is the complex relationship between yeah. beatrix and bill because it's she's not only going after revenge, but she's going after revenge on someone that she was genuinely in love with. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. it's very, very complicated. Yeah. Uh, well, another I, thing too, to bring up is like, oh, sorry, Todd, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say like over time we see in this movie over time, we see bill is, you know, build that relationship with Ryan so that by the time it's, it is revealed the, the nature of his quest uh, to you know, it makes me think of D and D, like you know, people going on quests and stuff. But like the nature of his quest just got exponentially more difficult yeah. and more complicated because of the because of that relationship. So anyway, I'll, I'll, Gary, go ahead. Well, I was just going <laughs> to say, dr- like, I'm a little uh, drunk. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> we all are. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, no, no. The one thing I was going to bring up is that. Uh, you know, we we talked about the morally complex situation of a Western and stuff like that. And, you know, like it's it's hard to have like straight up good guys and bad guys in a situation like that, uh, whether we like to admit it or not. We're all spawns of a, you know, we're, we all come from like complicated backgrounds. And mm. so the uh, 
there there's a scene in in the blu-ray review i just wanted to bring up this thought was interesting like alex cox like look this up and it was just like outside of when he goes into uh anthony dawson's character four aces like that bar there's a side outside that says like on display uh murrieta's skull or something like that it's like on the wall outside of the building and he like talks about looking it up and it's just like okay so uh joaquin murrieta carrillo uh he was known as the robin hood of the west or the robin hood of el dorado and like he's like legit dude you can look him up like he uh was a mexican and he was sick of like some american uh imposition like on what was going on in their country and so he fought back against them and uh just like started robbing from americans like giving to mexicans <laughs> and they ended up catching him and killing him and cutting off his head they put it in a glass jar and they actually took it on tour around the west like Jeez. you could come look at uh joaquin murrieta's skull or like his wow. head like in wow. the glass jar and he was just basically like what art department knew that <laughs> like, he was just like, who are these people like just that uh, kind of detail <laughs> yeah, yeah. like the that's, that's i don't know hilarious. it's Jeez. just weird weird stuff from them yeah so i'm, I'm uh, so I, like I, johnny carson Weird, weird, weird stuff. Weird, 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 <laughs> wacky stuff. That's gonna uh, really but speaking go of heads, the, I will say, listeners, <laughs> one of the one of the things I do love in this movie is uh, sorry if you watched a shitty quality version of it, but there are some great shots in this movie, not just of landscapes, but of just the way they emphasize people's faces. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Just it, because there's so many great faces in this movie, yeah. like just so, some really cool, just people that are cast in this movie that yeah. are just all memorable and and that honestly uh before we wrap up i i have to mention that final siege like the gun battle at the end of this movie is i mean it's not quite a while it's not quite the wild bunch which right. would come a couple years later but it feels like a precursor to the wild bunch like it really truly does because the, the wild bunch was 69 i think and it really truly feels like this was i don't know if peck and paul saw this movie but it feels, it feels like he did. <laughs> it feels like he did. Well, it seems like this movie is pretty influential. I mean, not just to Tarantino, but to a lot of folks. Yeah. Well, I think well, that's. Uh, yeah, ahead, I was Gary. just gonna say. I think the same, uh, same dude, like uh, what was it, Carlo Carlini, uh, did all the camera work. Was like the cinematographer, basically, yeah. for like this movie. He was. Uh, for he was for a few dollars more. He was for this movie. So again, like yeah. some of that same. There's a reason this looks as good as a Leone movie. Right. Well, I think that's it for uh, for Death Rides a Horse, guys. That's episode one of our Kill Bill series, Six Degrees of Kill Bill. Uh, so this whole series is going to be kind of a variety of genres. I, I We tried to keep them pretty diverse as far as the genres go. So next week, where it's going to be another revenge movie, I'll go ahead and tell you that. Revenge movies are going to be a, um, a through line through not every one of these movies, but a lot of <laughs> several of them. And the one we're talking about next week is a Japanese film from 1973 called Lady Snowblood. And man, I'm, let me tell you, once you watch this movie, 
from the opening credits, the very beginning of the movie, you will immediately see just how influential this movie is on Kill Bill. As always, you can find these movies to stream online uh, in a lot of places. Most of the movies we talk about, we try to find stuff you can stream online. Hit up cinemashock.net. We've got links there where you can stream every movie that we talk about if it's available to stream. And this one certainly is as of this recording. I guess that's it for this episode, guys. Thank you for joining again, Todd. Thank you, Gary, for thanks for helping me, me do some research. And thank you guys for listening. You guys have anything else to add? No, I, I, really, I don't. I really enjoyed I, this. I, I, I'm probably going to go get the Blu-ray. Good, good. I'm, I'm glad, glad you liked it, man. It, it really is good. And and I'm trying to be like real with a, when I told the story about like uh, the good, the bad, the ugly. I think spaghetti westerns are weird. They're not like standard westerns i mean there is a difference in 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 the way that they're made and so like there's a yeah there's a totally different style this one does try to help you along at the beginning like to to ease you into it so in that sense honestly uh i could totally see anybody who has the opinion that this is the best one like it almost like it it like it, it brings you it brings you into the movie. I, I, I know that's probably blasphemy to a lot of other people that have like, you know, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly or fistful of dollars and stuff like that. But it's a, it's a, it's, it's a really solid movie and I love the way it plays out. And I, I think everybody is cast to perfection. Lee Van Cleef and John Law in this movie, like John Law is a guy who could appear perfectly bland in any other movie. But in this one, the dialogue and the scripting like make him stand out as like a guy that I was looking up afterwards, like the fuck did this guy do? Like, where did he go? <laughs> yeah. And uh, cause he seems like he, he served like he's a million bucks in this movie and uh, it's, it's great. Yeah. It's, and, and I hope that our listeners enjoy, you know, our, our forays into some of these weirder genres. Cause I want to do more stuff like this. Cause I think this stuff is really fun to explore. Uh, there's a million podcasts out there talking about blockbusters and we'll not that we won't do that. Obviously we talked about Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy and we'll, we'll revisit some bigger movies like that on occasion. But um, I think that, I mean, talking about movies like this, they're just there, there's a, a hundred million movie podcasts out there. I think it's going to be really fun to explore some of the lesser known corners of the movie universe and, and go deeper into those movies than most people would be willing to, <laughs> because it's, because honestly, it's very difficult yeah, <laughs> as, yeah. as me and Gary have, have discovered on this one. It's very difficult to find information on some it takes of these. a lot longer than you think. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so I hope you enjoy, let us know what you think about this episode and about this series and, we would love to hear your feedback on it. We are at cinemashock.net. I think you can email us on there. I don't know. But it, it, you can always hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We're on Twitter at cinema underscore shock. Same on Instagram. Look us up on Facebook. Uh, we're on YouTube. Gary's in the process of uploading all of our audio episodes to YouTube. We are also doing the occasional uh, live stream on YouTube. At, 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 the, at the time of this recording, every episode of our show is in the process of uploading to youtube although nice. i did try this new experiment where i'm doing a one day at a time yeah so they're like all in there they're just scheduled to appear one day later just well that way it does all... yeah sure why not <laughs> <laughs> uh but anyway where can you guys be found on the internet i'm at mr todd a davis on facebook twitter instagram letterboxd and D beyond Todd, it's good to have you back for like two episodes in a row. I just want to say, and uh, 
<laughs> just, I know. I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> you know, happy to I, be just, here. I just wanted to establish that. I'm just glad to have you. We're happy to have you here. Yeah. Gary, how about you? Hi, <laughs> Matt. This is Gary Horn. Easy enough for everything, even the hackers. I'm at, I'm at Justin <laughs> underscore Bishop. Again, find Cinema Shock everywhere. Like us, uh, f- you know, review us and rate us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that you can rate and review us. Hit us up at cinemashock.net. Find all our old episodes or find a link to our T-shirts and buy a T-shirt. Uh, we don't make hardly any money off of them. So, you know, it's, it's cool if you want to buy them just to support the show. So, that's all we're looking for just yeah we, just, we're not we're not making any money off you can't find t-shirts for as cheap as these t-shirts just get some cinema shock t-shirts and hoodies and shit and wear it around and tell people to look at us and tag us on instagram and we'll repost you yeah absolutely. yes please yeah we would love to do that. suck your dick <laughs> <laughs> and it'll be the best you've ever had and if you don't have one he'll suck whatever you tell him to <laughs> Well, until next week, I guess. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. Be excellent to each other. Johnny has it the keys. Oh, wow. Perfect. I like Mario with it.